Welcome to Moments in Leadership, a podcast where you will hear firsthand about the careers of senior military leaders as they share their own unique and individual experiences. Moments in Leadership will immerse you in real-life stories where you will learn about the challenging situations these accomplished leaders faced and discover the lessons they learned early in their careers that were the most influential to developing their overall leadership style. And now, here's your host, retired Marine Corps Lieutenant Colonel David B. Armstrong. Welcome to Moments in Leadership. Today, my guest is retired Marine Corps Lieutenant General Bob Boomer Milstead, who served 40 years in the Marine Corps as an aviator flying the Cobra helicopter, but was also an Anglico Marine and a company commander at the basic school. In part one of a two-part interview, General Milstead and I spend some time talking about his career as an aviator, and we get into a great conversation about the difference between leading and managing and how those roles in the Marine Corps are in, and in the military in general are different than in the civilian world. And it isn't until halfway through our careers as officers that we actually have to start to learn how to manage rather than lead. We also have a really interesting conversation that ties back into episode two with Matt Cooper, where we talk about how as we age and get older, our ability to assess leadership is different. And similar to what Matt says, it's tougher to recognize how good some leaders are until much further along in your life and your career. And stick around until the very end when General Milstead introduces the concept of the difference between something that is a sin and something that's a crime as a leader. So with no further ado, here's retired Marine Corps Lieutenant General Bob Boomer Milstead. General Milstead, welcome to Moments in Leadership. I really appreciate your willingness to come on and talk to us about your Geez, almost 40 years of experience in the Marine Corps. Yeah, this this will be fun. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. As as you and I have discussed before, you are uh, revered by many of my colleagues and friends in the Marine Corps, both in the aviation side and, and uh, you have your Anglico experience. So I'm sure a lot of my listeners who are my Anglico brethren are going to be interested to hear some stories about the old Anglico and things like that. But, you know, you're, you're, you're quite the name because uh, your time in the aviation community and then also, and I know we'll get into this, but your time as a company commander at the basic school too. So you have definitely left an impression upon many of the second lieutenants. Some of them are my friends. And, and I've been excited about doing this interview for about a week and a half now. So I'm glad we're connecting. One of the really interesting things that you said to me when we started talking about doing this interview is that you have this philosophy that no one is really born a leader and they're more or less born into an opportunity to lead. And you went on to tell me that you thought that your leadership skills from your younger days as a lieutenant were much different than your leadership skills from when you were a lieutenant colonel and a squadron commander. And then your leadership skills were much different as a MAG or Marine Air Group commander and, and so on. It fits so perfectly into what I'm trying to do with this project, which is convey these vignettes of leadership that people experience in their in the younger part of their careers and then draw connections about those crystallizing moments that were so in, instrumental in developing your leadership style when you were a Marine Air Group commander. Because there's no way you're a Marine Air Group commander without all of those experiences as a squadron commander and as a, as a young lieutenant and captain in the aviation community. And I'm wondering if we could just really quickly hear a little bit about where your career took you, but jump into one of those leadership vignettes about how you became a leader in the Marine Corps. I was more a follower 
I think, in, in, in my college days. And I wasn't one of those guys that, you know, jumped right out at the front and follow me. I, I developed, I believe, as, as you pointed out, that uh, leadership is as much caught as it is taught. You know, and, and you're if you're fortunate to work for some people, you see some things. You know, I've never worked for a leader that I didn't, uh, I never worked for somebody that I didn't learn something from. It may have been bad mm. and it, it, tough lessons to be sure, but still lessons. So I, I do believe that, that, that nobody is born a leader. They may be born into an opportunity. They may be born with some seeds. But for me, it was developed. And I think it was probably maybe an Anglico where I was a small unit leader, where I had to develop a relationship, you know, with enlisted and depend on them and, and, and learned a lot. I think that may have been an area that where I began to realize that, you know, hey, I enjoy this and, and not that I have a, a knack for it, but that this leadership. And, and for those of you that haven't heard any of the earlier podcasts, uh, General Milstead and I share in common a unit that we both served in, not at the same time, referred to as Anglico, which is an acronym for Air Naval Gunfire Liaison Company. And it's small teams that do exactly what it sounds like. They go out and they liaise on air and naval gunfire employment across the board. It's a pretty interesting community. But General Mill said you were you were a pilot first, and you were you were a helicopter Aviator. pilot and a cobra. Yeah, I'm, so, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, exactly. You got to square us ground guys away. We get all the right. you know us the artillery guys were a stickler for terminology until it's somebody else's. That's right. But you know, I did. I, I you know to, to walk the dog very quickly. I was an OCS guy. I was an ROTC. I wasn't. PLC. I was in a Navy program. I grew up in an Air Force family. My father was an Air Force pilot. So my whole life, I knew one thing. I wanted to fly. You know, that that was my polar star. I wanted to fly. So I'm in college. I'm in my senior year. I'm in a Navy program. I haven't done anything with the Navy yet. Probably two months from graduation. And I'm walking down the street in Houston. And I see one of those signs that's on the springs that kind of blows back and forth in the wind. And it's like <laughs> sure. the Marines, Marines are looking for a few good men to fly. And I go, well, I didn't know anything about the Marines. So I walked in, I'm office traffic. I walked in and there's the Oso. And I talked to him that night. I called my dad and I said, I'm joining the Marine Corps. Oh, he must've been thrilled. Hey, well, now he is, <laughs> but, but then, but to so Six months later, I show up at, at OCS, at Quantico. And so when you say when you were in a Navy program, what, were you in a program that when you graduated from college, you were going to go to Navy OCS? Is yeah, that what you mean by that? Yeah, I was going to go okay. to the AVROC program, you know, which is kind of like, you know, an officer and a gentleman, you know, that that kind of stuff. And I, I just, you know, I always gravitated towards the Navy. And, the, and truth be told, the Air Force wasn't you know they were riffing. This was 1974. They weren't. They were not bringing people into the air force as pilots. You know they tell you, yeah, you come in as a navigator, and one day we'll trans. You know transition you. But that's that was bullshit. But and, and so I did OCS, and then bam, I think they gave us like four days off between OCS and right into TBS. Did six months of TBS, and I got a week and a half off. And I checked into Pensacola. And then I graduated from Pensacola 11 months to the day I checked in. 11 months. I flew 23 straight days one time. 
Well, I think now nowadays people wait 11 months just to start flight school after TBS. TBS is the basic school where all officers go who get commissioned as Marines, and we all go through a very common training. And then the aviators will go to flight school and the artillery guys will go to – and that sort of thing. So normally now, sir, I think there's a quite an extensive waiting period. Oh, yeah. Guys won't check into the fleet until they're, they're like captains. I, and and being a Cobra guy, Cobras and Hueys, there was not a training squadron like the uh, transports. So we went straight to our squadrons and they were responsible to train us. So I checked into HMA 169 at Camp Pendleton as a second lieutenant. I got my first flight in the Cobra as a second lieutenant. What was that, Vipers? Is that 169? Yeah, it's the, the, the yeah, the Vipers. But we, we didn't call ourselves the Vipers back then. But, but yeah, and seven months later, I go on the first UDP, which is the Unit Deployment Program. They were looking at, you know, six-month rotations instead of, not to get complicated, but in, instead of, you know, the one-year tours. And so I go to Okinawa as a, as, a, as a boot first lieutenant. So I did two tours in 169, and then I went to Anglico, which you explained. And then I came back, uh, and I was in the training squadron. By then, they'd started a training squadron. So I did a training squadron and for a while, and then I went to off and command and staff. So I was a captain selected for major and headed off to command and staff uh, college. And after that's when I went to the basic school, which turned out to be a great, great tour. So that was after command and staff. Yeah. As a yeah. major. As a as a as a young major. Okay. As a young major, I was in the command and leadership group for for a year, and I taught some tactics, and then I was a company commander for for Elvis Company, Company E, and and Alpha Company, Company A. That was a special time at, at the basic school. I mean, we had. Jim Amos, who became the commandant, was a lieutenant colonel on the staff there. John Kelly, who four-star, another four-star, was a friend of mine and was a, a major on the staff there. Louis Craparata. Was it, um, there was also Colonel Kelly, who was the CO then too. Was that the same time you were there when Colonel Kelly? That was Kelly? Ed Kelly. Ed, Ed Kelly. Kelly. Yeah. Ed Kelly took over from a guy named Terry Ebert. But Ed Kelly, Colonel Kelly, was the was the CO. So we had Louis Craparata. He's still on active duty as a three-star. Stacey sure. Clarity's a three-star. Jody Osterman just retired. He was a three-star. And me, and just countless colonels that really made a name for themselves in the Corps. It was a special group of officers. It was it was a it was a special time. I'll bet. So then from there, after TBS, you were probably a mid-level major? Yeah, I I went to I, I went to uh, Mag thirty six on Okinawa. I had to go back through refresher training, and that's when Saddam Hussein, you know, invades Kuwait. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa! There, I'm heading to Okinawa. There can't be a war without me. But there was. I tried to get my orders changed and tried to get into one of the gun squadrons that was was heading over there. And the guy on Okinawa said, "No, no, 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 no. He's he's coming to us." Yeah, that that was a that was a very dark time. Uh, I can imagine it formed some some things that we can talk about later about how I brought my Marine aircraft group home from war because I remembered what it was like to to miss the fight. But so then I did Mag thirty six and I took my family with me. It was a one year on a company tour and I extended and I took them. We lived out in town. 
um, ended up having a, a, a daughter. Our youngest was born over there. Came back, went to Third Mall headquarters for about a year at a thing called the Ace Forward. Went to Somalia with them and then then got back into my, my home squadron, 169. And I uh, was the XO. And then I fleeted up as, as the CO. And we can talk about that in a little while because that sounds interesting to go from XO to CO. Sure. Yeah, that and that's a tough transition. But when I was at the wing headquarters before, that was the first time they did command screening, and we can talk about that. And I did not screen. I was I was a lieutenant colonel select, so I was looked at. But there were all those guys, and they could only pick so many, and so I didn't screen. So I took that as as failure. I'd, I'd never I'd never dealt with failure like that in my life. We could we can talk about that. That taught me a great deal. You know, when when you can you can empathize instead of sympathize with somebody that's mm. that's gone through those sorts of things. But then I so I, I had a great time. I got to command 169, which is the squadron I was raised in. Then went to the National War College, was a student at the National War College, and then headed over to headquarters Marine Corps in the Department of Aviation. That's interesting time. We'll talk about that because I was screened but then the commandant then was General Krulak, and they pulled me off the command screen and said, no, you got to go joint because you're not joint. So I said, well, I'm screwed, so I'll just stay in the building. And so I went to OSD, Office of Secretary of Defense. And then lo and behold, I, I screened for MAG-29 down at New River. Had never been to New River, never been stationed on the East Coast. Uh, you know, aviation, and they'd never had a Cobra pilot command MAG-29. So you can imagine what they thought. Here comes a West Coast Cobra guy, and he's going to command. But it was a, another special group of people at a special time, and we, we went to war. Right, and so a MAG is a Marine Air Group. For for listeners who may not be a Marine, that's when things aren't squadrons anymore. That's when there are a lot of different squadrons under a Marine Air Group as the umbrella. So when you're a group commander, you're not only commanding the Cobras, but you're commanding transport helicopters. And right. Jets we had and six, I think six or seven squadrons. We had 246 squadrons. We had a 53 squadron. We had a 53 training squadron. We had a, a, Co a Cobra Huey squadron, had the MALS, which is the maintenance guys, had the headquarters squadron. And that's an interesting time too. And we can talk about that because as a Cobra guy, last thing you need to do is be spending extra time down in the Cobra squadron. You know, can you imagine the poor guy that's the squadron commander? No, it's like having a gunnery instructor as a battery commander. So yeah, exactly. And then I thought I was done. So I, I said, you know, hey, I uh, came back from war, if you want to call it a war, and then uh, went over to 4th Meb and was going to finish up at 4th Meb, they came to me and they said, you know, we're downsizing in Iraq and we need a, we, we want a, a colonel to take the wing forward over. And we want somebody with combat experience. And everybody agrees you're the guy. And I was like, uh, no, you know, I, I've, I've done my 30. It's, you know, it's time for me to, to move on. So I changed my mind very quickly, went back and said, okay. Then I got selected for Brigadier General. On my fourth look, my fourth look, which is worth talking about. It sure is, because I think I think now it's three and... Well, yeah, two. But I was in a unique situation in that, you know, the first time, first couple times I've been looked at, I'd never, I was still in the Pentagon. 
because they had expanded the zones and everything. So I was selected for Brigadier General, came back and spent, what, a year and a half as the Director of Public Affairs in Headquarters Marine Corps. Okay. Then I got sent down to Quantico to command the Marine Corps Recruiting Command, probably one of, next to leading Marines in combat, one of my most most favorite times. And I, you know, didn't know anything about recruiting, which kind of worked out. And then General Amos became commandant and he said he wanted me to be, he'd nominate me for my third star and wanted me to be his, his manpower guy. And I did four years. He retired me and then he retired like two weeks later. So I did four years as his manpower guy, you know, and uh, it ended up 40 years in the Marine Corps. Inconceivable to my Lance Corporals. They go, how long were you in the Marine Corps? Sir, you were you were in the Marine Corps before my father was born. That's crazy. I One of the things that makes speaking to you and, and my other guests is every anybody who's served or, or anybody that's even worked in a civilian job, everybody can relate to being a first lieutenant, second lieutenant, every, or, or a lance corporal. Everybody can relate to, uh, and I'll say for the other services, basically 0102 or E2, E3 kind of. Everybody can relate to that because everybody who served, serves in those ranks. Or if you're in a civilian world, entry-level worker in your 20s, everybody can relate to that. 100% everybody can relate to that. Only 1% of the people can relate to being a general officer or a sergeant major or the CEO of a, of a big company. And people find that so fascinating. And so when you say you spent 40 years in the Marine Corps, I mean, that's that's serious time. That And, you know, as a three-star general, there's, well, the young, the young folks like me like to say this about the generals like you, which is at that point, you know, you're not in the system. You are the system. You're moving some heavy wood. Yeah, you you are. It, I'd have to pinch myself sometimes sitting at there at, 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 at the big meetings where you'd be at, a, at the big wooden table and the commandants at one end, the assistant commandants at the other, three stars all around the table. And, and you're sitting there and you're like, what <laughs> am I doing here? You know, right. holy mackerel. So, yeah, it, it's, it, it, it is and it should be. Very humbling. Well, I definitely, I definitely want to hear more about that. I want to come back and, and I'm going to ask you a question because I, I want to ask you to relay what it was like the moment you got the call. I'm assuming you get a phone call. Hey, you've been selected for general. It, at this point, it would have been your fourth phone call, I think you said, because I'm sure you get phone calls when you didn't get selected too. No, no. Well, yeah. You know, hey, hey Boomer, um, you know, you're not on the list. I, I didn't expect it, you know, you know, so thank you, sir. But Anybody that tells you that the first time that they, they got was the call from the commandant is blowing smoke up your skirt. Somebody is, you know, you've gotten whispers, you've gotten, you've gotten some hints. You know, I went home, I said to my wife, honey, I think I may have been, I think, I think I may have been selected for Brigadier General. But everybody does get a call and they get the call. And for me, I was, that was the period I, we, we had not yet deployed to Iraq. We were getting ready to, to go and, and being a Cobra guy, I, you know, I said, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to fly. I was at Marine Corps Air Station, New River, and I was getting my annual NATOPS check. That's where once a year you have to get your check ride and they, you, you know, they know that you, you can sign for your airplane and you're qualified. I was, uh, I just finished the flying that the NATOPS check squadron CO. Uh, walks out to the flight line, you know, and hey, hey sir, um, commandant's aide called and 
commandant wants to talk to you on the phone. He said they're going to call back in about 30 minutes. So why don't you just come up to my office and um, hang out in my office until the commandant calls? I, I had a pretty good feeling that I knew what that what that meant. And so I sat up there with him. And when the commandant called, he, he walked out of the office. And the, his General Hagee was the commandant. And he says, you probably already know this, but I just want to call you and and tell you personally, you know, you've been selected for promotion to, to Brigadier General. I would talk to him just briefly and then called my wife and said, honey, guess what? It's crazy because you probably remember this twice, but there are those moments at TBS when you're a second lieutenant. And there were moments when you were there as a major, as a company commander. And at some point, you you either said to a group of lieutenants or somebody came in and said to the group of lieutenants, somebody in this room is going to be a general. The general will say, like, I'd give anything to be back in your shoes. What's really interesting is that you can actually relate to that because you became a general and you know what those lieutenants were going through at TBS because you were a, a company commander. And then you know what they were going through because you were there too. You know, I mean, I never thought I'd go 40 years. I never, you know, it, you eat that elephant one bite at a time, mm-hmm. you know, and it was, I'd come home and tell my wife, I go, hey, my, my contract's up. We can get out. She said, well, you're having fun, aren't you? And we're, we're enjoying this. Yeah. Okay. You know, and that, that happened. And then, then you get promoted to major and that has a little bit more, you know, you got to hang around a little bit longer and then you go to school that, that has a, has a tail to it. And the next thing you know, I may, I could actually be a squadron commander. Right. So, you know, you, you a little bit, a little bit, a little bit, and a little bit, and, and, and you keep going. But I was never, you know, one of those guys that was like, oh yeah, yeah, that's me. That was, no. If you rewind back to that time as a late second lieutenant, first lieutenant, and you're checking in at 169, and there was no formal training for the aircraft, you said the squadron was responsible for, and I can't remember, we used to call it the RAG, but. Yeah, there was a syllabus. It was formal. There was no RAG, but it was, you know, there was a formal syllabus. You had to get X number of X's and. I was miserable. Uh, may, maybe you can tell us a couple of stories about those times when you're checking into a squadron, some of the things you learned. I've got to imagine in the aviation community, there are some moments of fear, I think, probably, that that all aviators experience. And some of those early experiences flying and learning to fly must have been crystallizing for you in your leadership style at some point. The things that I remember are things like, I'm brand new. I'm a second lieutenant. Okay, so I'm calling first lieutenants, sir, and they're like, you know, stop that. I remember I had a 1976 Cutlass Salon. Oh, what a what a what a set of wheels that I bought in Pensacola, you know. So I go whipping it. Well, there's a parking spot right up towards the front. So I just go whipping in the parking spot and, and go in there. And and the captains in this squadron at this time, most of them had Vietnam time, mm-hmm. but they were still captains. So they're a crusty bunch. And here I am, a second lieutenant. And I won't say his name, but he, he comes, this guy walks into the ready room and I'm sitting there and he goes, who the F's cutlass is parked down there in the, and I'm like, well, that's mine, sir. And he goes, tosses me his keys. He's got a vet. He goes, that's my parking spot. Move your F in the car <laughs> and put my car in that and bring the keys back here. And I've never forgot that. You know, <laughs> what a dumbass. I mean, you know, hey, there's an empty spot. So I did. I moved the cars in there. And the XO of that squadron, I think he's dead now, so I can say this. But 
oh boy, he just took took to me. I was miserable. I was miserable. I'd sit in the BOQ and, and of course we didn't have cell phones, any of that stuff. And so, you know, I get to talk to my girlfriend, now my wife, you know, commiserate. I was just, I was miserable. But, you know, I learned a lot and there were some great characters in there. Again, these guys taught me a lot. They taught me a lot. I think one of the things that makes the aviation community fascinating to the ground people is the the difference in leadership in terms of your responsibility in that aircraft is learning to fly it safely and becoming a great pilot. You're learning from others about a technical, I'll call it a technical skill, of flying an aircraft. And on the ground side, we were learning about our technical skills and things like that by looking to emulate others. Did you find yourself in that period of your career trying to emulate leadership styles of other aviators that you were flying with? I, th- I think so. I think I think you always do that. I mean, I, I think that starts from the from the very first. Our your SPC, you know, your staff platoon commander, the that that captain or that first lieutenant that was responsible for you at the basic school. Remember him? You kind of watched him, and 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 you took the things that he did. Our guy's name was Dick Lewis, and I remember one time, for some reason, he was wearing a, a rubber band on his wrist, and he and he had it on for a couple of days. By the end of the week, half the platoon had rubber bands on their wrist. You know, I mean, that's my joke, but but it's true. So you know, it, it's it's examples, it's it's leadership by example, and it's the same thing. You you learn the skills, and and I was very blessed to to as I came up in that squadron to work to work around and fly with some guys that were very experienced. And so did I copy? Copy? Yeah. Yeah. Plagiarism is the greatest form of flattery. You bet. And I think the thing that's really interesting is, so for listeners, General Mosa was a Cobra pilot and Cobras are front seat, back seat, not side by side. So, and I'm, and I'm assuming that as you're, as you're learning to fly. So if, if I think back to when I was a first lieutenant or a captain, I am observing the behavior of, 40 to 150 people all at once, either it's a platoon or a company or anything like that. You're in an aircraft with one person and you're trying to learn that skill from one person without being able to see see them all that well, especially if you're sitting in the front seat. And maybe you could talk about how you learned to lead in the aviation community and become a technically proficient aviator in an environment where it's, it's probably a lot harder to see and emulate people's skill set in an aircraft relative to, say, a ground officer who can watch his company commander issue a brief and things like that. It must be a completely different environment to try to learn. You learn how to fly. They'll talk to you. Hey, watch your nose attitude. Bring your nose up here. Push it over this. They'll talk you through maneuvers and stuff like that. But you also had a regular job. You know, you had a job on the ground. You know, you're you're working in ops. You're you're working in maintenance. Everybody wanted to get in maintenance because that that way they would have enlisted Marines, you know, around them. You know, so you had other jobs. So you learned your leadership. You know how to work with enlisted Marines and things like that. Because remember, we had not done that. You know, I'd been at the officer candidate school. I'd gone to flight school. And then I'd gone to the gone to the basic school, and then I'd gone to flight school, and now I checked in. So I'd I'd, I'd never had a lance corporal or or sergeants around me. And for me, you know, I was very fortunate. Again, I said I grew up in an Air Force family. My dad was an Air Force officer. He was a pilot, 
and he was one of my mentors. My dad taught me a lot, and he, one of the things he told me when, when you go off, he called them non-coms. You know, that's what the Air Force called non-commissioned officers. He said, listen to them. Listen to them, and they'll they'll teach you. Worst thing you can do is go in there and start acting like you're in charge because you may be senior to them in, in rank, but you don't know, you know, poop from smokehouse ham. So I ended up working in, in quality assurance, which is probably the top ends places in maintenance. And I did that. I told I, I joke around and say, I, you know, my first boss was a gunny. I worked for Gunny Goodfowl was his name, Bert Goodfowl. But I, I told him right up front, listen, I, I don't know shit. You're going to have to, you know, help me. And uh, and he he grabbed it. He, he liked that. What were some of the tough lessons you learned your fr- at, at 169? Keep your mouth shut, you know, just keep your mouth shut. If you don't know something, keep your mouth shut. But tough lessons, we would get wirebrush regularly. The, you know, the low-end lieutenants, they called us pueys, pilots under instruction, pueys. And they would spit it out like it was a subhuman life form. That affected when I was a squadron commander and, you know, later in my career, how I would treat the new guys, as we call them in the Marine Corps, the FNGs, right? So from 169, you went over to Anglico. And what I found really interesting about your time at Anglico, the first thing that jumped out to me was that you were at 2nd Anglico. But 2nd Anglico was at Camp Pendleton, as as, mo- as listeners may, may or may not know now, Geez, there's six Anglicos now, but first Anglicos in, at Camp Pendleton and second Anglicos at Camp Lejeune, North Carolina, or Camp Lejeune, depending on what your uh, generation is. In the- they had put first Anglico in a cadre status, so they called a separate brigade platoon second Anglico. We could only do a single regiment or a single brigade, whereas you know the East Coast, or, and now the guys on the West Coast, they can do the full Monte. So it was a smaller unit. It was a separate brigade platoon, 2nd Anglico. But we were at the same building that you were in, right there, looking Del Mar. Swingland trainer right next to us. And uh, and that that was, I think, where I, that's where the transformation began. And, and it was a great tour. I, I went through jump school, and then I went through Pathfinder school, too, when I was, when I was there. Spent two years in Anglico. It's such a great unit. And the building that you talk about, if... Any of the listeners are also following my Instagram page. I have a picture, sir, of the uh, the Anglico CP at some point, and maybe it was when you were there. They painted the word Anglico on the roof so you could see it from an airplane. And there's a picture of, of us conducting a spy rigging operation so you could see the Marines swinging out underneath the belly of a Huey over the CP, six guys hanging off of it, and the Anglico on the roof of the old building. It's a fantastic picture. I'll, I'll make sure. I'll make sure that you see it. Uh, so you came into Anglico as an aviator off of a, a UDP to Okinawa. So you had spent some time flying. Well, I'd been on the boat too. I did two tours in 169. So um, I was promoted to captain the second tour, and we were on the boat. We were on the old USS Tripoli LPH 10. You, you may have shaved with it this morning. Well, as a matter of fact, I my last uh, MU deployment was the command. The command ship was the USS New Orleans, which was LPH. Jeez, uh, I don't even remember. No well deck, right? Old. Yeah, same thing. Same thing. Same as the. So I, I'd done that. Came back and then uh, then went to Anglico. 
when you checked, you said it was a smaller unit than than what it is now. Were there other aviators there with you? Did you did you come with new aviators? Most of the officers were either uh, artillery officers. There were two. There were two Navy officers. One of which is still still remains a very close friend of mine. And then there was uh, gee whiz, the 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 CO was an infantry officer. He was one of my mentors. A guy named Paul Pugh um, ended up at Villanova. Just a retired colonel, just a, a stellar officer. I learned a great deal from him. He was the CO. His XO was an aviator. The S1 was an aviator. I was the S3. I was an aviator. The S4 was an aviator. They were pretty much aviators. There were some artillery guys. Uh, the artillery guys were first lieutenants. There was an ensign and a lieutenant, JG, because we focused on artillery and naval gunfire, and air-delivered ordnance. What do you remember about some of your leadership lessons that you learned as you were transitioning out of being an aviator and now essentially being a ground officer and leading Marines in a ground role? That's where I really began to learn that uh, you can't do everything. You've got to delegate. You know, you're ultimately responsible, but you've got to delegate. You've got to trust people. You know, and so that's kind of where I developed what I call my dad principle. You know, delegate and disappear. You know, and then I smile, but you know, you're you're ultimately accountable, but but you gotta let people do stuff, you know, and, and and they may not do it the way exactly you'd do it, but you gotta let them do it. And uh, you can't do everything. We talk about delegation as a leadership skill routinely in in the Marines, and we talk about how important it is. But I I personally find it to be one of the hardest things for people to actually embrace and do. And I'm wondering if you can share some moments about your successes there or well i think i think the marine corps is better at it today than it was i mean those are mission orders right mission orders to me the exemplar of a mission order is when they look at chamberlain and they say you are the left flank of the union line you must hold this ground at all cost they didn't tell him to anchor on the on the boulder and and refuse his left flank and turn it around they just said you are the left flank of the union line you will hold this ground at all costs and 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 the guy rode away so that's mission orders. It's an interesting concept, too, that translates really well over into regular, everyday civilian leadership, too. The whole, I love your term, delegate and disappear. It's, it's, such, a, it's such a great way to remember the importance of not only delegating, but then disappearing. Because if you delegate and just stand there and watch, you're just a micromanager at that point, right? That's right. And it applies to the corporate world as much as to the military world. It absolutely does. And I find that one of the interesting things when I look at people who serve in the military, Marines specifically, and some of my and my civilian friends is that while we may not think that we're ever great at delegating in the military, it's part of our DNA. It, and that's something that on the civilian side, people really don't have a, a huge opportunity to grow up learning until they're in a position and it doesn't come very naturally to them. It's the unwritten leadership trait uh, or principle that could definitely transcend military service to civilian leadership. We're just control freaks. And and so it's, they call it micromanagement. It's, can you imagine trying to be a division commander or a wing commander or, or even an air group commander? I can remember as a lieutenant, you talked about checking in the squadron, looking at the CO and thinking, God, he's old looking. And how does he know everything that's going on in this squadron? Well, he doesn't. So you can now imagine, take that up many more levels to where you're a, 
you're a Marine aircraft group commander and you've got seven squadrons. Do you know everything that's going on? No. But do you know who your squadron commanders are and you trust them and you've given them something, to, a mission to do? And then you let them do it. Right, exactly. And, and of course, you're, you're ultimately responsible for everything that your people do or fail to do. Exactly. And maybe we could do a better job of this in the Marine Corps or in any of the services is we all grew up, and maybe they don't do this anymore, but I know you and I grew up with when you're going through boot camp or officer can school, whatever it is, there's only three responses, yes or no, sir, and the candidate will find out, sir. I mean, right? That's kind of the, the joke. Boy, at some point, as a leader... I, I think the answer of I don't know is probably one of the best answers you could give if you're truly delegating things to people. It doesn't mean you'll never know. I think there are there – are, especially as you get up in rank or it, get up in responsibility in a civilian world where if you're properly delegating things to people that you trust and somebody says, what's going on with XYZ? And you say, I don't know. That is not a an indication of somebody who is not in charge and not – it's – I don't know because the person I delegated to hasn't finished it yet. And as soon as they're done, I'll find out it's an honest answer. It's an it's an honest answer. I can recall vividly as a three-star sitting there having a staff meeting. And and I wasn't one for, for meetings. And, and a meeting had to be done in like 30 minutes. And But I can remember asking a, you know, such a, a guy a question. And he said, I don't know, sir. And I said, that is a great answer. And he says, but I'm going to find out and I'll come back to you. And I go, perfect. Thank you. You know, instead of tr- trying to bullshit me with, you know, because if you say, I don't know, too often in our business or in the corporate world or whatever, it's viewed as, you know, an admission of incompetency or, or you know, I don't know, I should know. And I, you know, it, it's as it's a weakness. No, admit you don't know it. It's a strength. And, you know, nowhere in our leadership traits and principles, we do you find anything that says, like, hey, it's okay to not know what's going on? I mean, that's, it's almost counterculture to us as Marines. Like, oh, geez, I don't know. At what point in your career, because you, you, you said I was leading a meeting as a three-star, if you, if you had to rewind back in your career, at what point was it that you realized that it was okay to have a subordinate not know the answer to a question that you had? It probably wasn't as a first and second lieutenant, right, sir? I mean, how you had to have developed that. Maybe a senior captain. The transition between, and that's something we should talk about, the transition between being a captain and a major is significant. That's the, the transition to management. That's I can recall vividly the Marine Air Group. I was on the Marine Air Group staff for a while. I was I was the weapons and tactics instructor, and, and, I, and I worked in the, in the operations thing. And, and I was a captain, and I was promoted to major. And the, and the executive officer, he said, you were one of the best captains I ever had, I've ever served with. But as a field grade officer, you are effed up. You know, you are, because as a captain, you know, you, you went through the wall. You know, you, you, you made things happen. You, but as a major, you know, and I hated myself as a major. That's the worst rank I ever had. You know, I'm sorry, I'll say it now. You know, but I hated it. You had to you had to do things differently. Uh, so I had an unusual career as major because I was in the reserve. So my major time wasn't isn't traditional to, uh, relative to a major time that somebody sees on active duty. But I do know exactly what you're saying. There's a completely different set of expectations, and your leadership style does have to change at that point because it's the first time in your military career 
that you start to introduce the term management into your career. Because up until that point, you are a leader, you're leading, you're, it's leadership. And then it becomes about management. And what's interesting in the civilian world is those two things are completely inverted. Most people start out managing something and then they are promoted up into leadership positions. And unfortunately, oftentimes they're synonymous. They view them as synonymous. Whereas, you know, we, you know, you manage things, you lead people. But all too often, and, and you nailed it, where, uh, you know, there are people that think, you know, manage, managing and leading are the same thing. And, and you don't. They're not. No, I had a squad and commander. He was, a, he was a phenomenal manager. He was a terrible leader. You can't be a good leader without being a good manager, but you can be a good manager without being a good leader. We all come across them in our careers, people who are great managers and never really inspire the, the men that they're leading, men and women that they're leading. And that happens, and you're right. And it's not that there's not a place for them. It's just that they're probably not going to become a general officer. Or they may. Assume. But they- <laughs> I suppose. I I wouldn't know. I, uh, I was lucky to become a lieutenant colonel. So... That, I just think that that's a really interesting point to punctuate because as people are listening to this podcast and they're trying to glean some insight into leadership from somebody who ascended all the way to the three-star rank and spent 40 years in the Marine Corps, people who are listening are trying to suss out some sort of nuggets that they can apply to their own life. And I think you just you just hit on two of them that it's okay to say, I don't know. And as a leader, it should be okay to accept that as an answer, a temporary answer. And the huge difference between management and leadership, because I think those two things are much more understood as being different in the military. I don't think that they are understood as being two different things in the civilian world. So maybe some of the people who are listening that are civilians, that's one thing that they could assess in their own, as they're developing their own leadership styles is, are you working on your management skills or are you working on your leadership skills? Because they're two, they're, they're mutually exclusive. Yes. Yes. The, the boundary between them sometimes is, is porous, but they are distinctly different. Right. Right. They can be, they can be as thin as a millimeter wide, but as thick as the Grand Canyon sometimes too. And I also think one of the things I hear from my peers a lot, there's as much to learn from a bad leader as there is a good leader. It's just one experience is a lot more enjoyable than the other. Oh, hell yes. And and you watched people and you went, that's, I like that. And so you put that in your card catalog, you know, or your Outlook file today. And then when you see something that you, that obviously, oh my God, I can't, I can't believe he did that. Then you, you put that aside. Absolutely. Like I said, I think earlier, I've never worked for somebody that I didn't learn something from. It may have been a negative lesson, but it was a lesson nonetheless. So my first guest was um, uh, retired Colonel Matt Cooper, who was uh, an artillery officer and a really good friend of mine. And uh, he tells a riveting story about his time when he was in the Oklahoma City building when it blew up and some of the leadership lessons he took out of that. But he goes on to tell a story about how his next time uh, in an artillery battalion he worked for a horrible battalion commander and he thought, geez, it just can't get any worse than this until the next guy came in and he was even worse. And Matt tells a story and for anybody listening to this, go back to episode one and you can listen to the story about halfway through our two hour chat. Um, And he talks about how awful the experience was and some of the things that his battalion commander did 
that set such horrible examples for people and how he learned so much from that in a way that was it's the opposite of trying to emulate somebody. And I'm wondering if you have any similar experiences like that in your career that you could, you know, share a vignette on. Uh, you know, I have one squadron commander and did a couple of things that uh, that were questionable at, at best. But on that, I think it's important also to say that that depends where you are. I can remember, for instance, I was a first lieutenant. We had a, a squadron commander and he ended up being relieved. I was just, I can't believe that they've, they've, they've relieved this guy. And as I've grown old, as I grew older and more experienced and developed, I can see exactly why they relieved it. And, they, and if I would have been the wing commander, I probably would have too. I can think of other in instances where I questioned, you know, decisions by leaders and went, you know, that, that, that is, that's, that's not the way to do things. But then as you, as you get older and more experienced, you can look back and go, you know, that guy wasn't as screwed up as I thought he was at that point. So I, I think that's important to, to, to bring up that, you know, the, the view depends on where you're sitting, you know, if, if you're following what I'm saying. The episode before this with you, I interviewed retired Major General Mel Spies, who I, I, I'm pretty sure you, you know personally. Um, and uh, Mel tells a story. Uh, he, 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 he tells a few stories and then his observation about leadership is this it's, and I'm going to, I'm boiling it down. I may get a little bit wrong, but he made the point that it's never the event that gets somebody relieved. It's always the person's behavior that is assessed in the context of the event that gets them relieved. I think that's probably 90%, you know, correct. I mean, there are times when it's what the guy did. Certainly. Yeah. I think his point was also in the context of second chances also in that if there was an event and it wasn't malicious and you're a good person and there are times that people get second chances. And, and that's, and that is a, you know, that's something that should, we should, we should stress because that, that is across all boundaries, corporate world. There is a difference between a, a you know, a sin and a crime. A big difference, and you should you should view them differently. You know what's wrong with giving a guy a second chance? You know we in the Marine Corps, you know, have 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 a reputation of not being very, you know, generous with second chances. But I, I think that's a bad rap. I think that we all get second chances. I, I know I made it as far as I did because I was given some second chances. And and anybody that makes it forty years and gets a third star. And doesn't think that they were ever, you know, given a second chance. I I feel sorry for. Them. Are you Are you willing to share a story about a second chance that you got? Oh, I've gotten second chance. Good grief! I mean, they're just not to go open kimono, but th there's plenty of second chances. I mean, I've 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 porked the poodle a couple of times. I mean, who hasn't? I mean, I've made the wrong decisions. You know, um, I talked to a, a a group of young officers once, and they they asked me. They said. What are some of your mistakes? And I said, without being specific, I think some of the, the things that I regret the most would be times that I didn't do something, that I should have done something, huh. instead of times that I did something, that I shouldn't have done something. In, in action, uh, I should have spoke up. I should have done something. Those are the times I think that, that you know, in the, in the uh, privacy of my own, reflections, I go, you know, 
I should have done something there. But second chances, I mean, I'd have to I'd have to sit back and think. But there's uh, no no too few of them. Believe me. It's funny that you say that about inaction. In my in my first podcast, I I shared a quick story where I where I thought there was a flash, and and you and I I will have to compare notes. We may have been in Somalia at the same time, but I, I share a story about when I was attached to one seven and I was an artillery officer with a uh, Prick 113, which is a radio that can talk to airplanes, uh, exclusively to talk to airplanes. It's rare for anybody who's not a forward air controller to have that radio. I did. There was a moment where I thought my indecisiveness was going to cost the lives of Marines because I didn't clear an aircraft hot on an engagement. And I thought that my indecisiveness on that was going to result in uh, Marine deaths on a raid. Turns out my indecisiveness was actually the right decision because I was unsure, I was unsure of the target. It turns out that it would have been a, a target full of civilians. So I, I, I know what you mean about that, that looking back on things and saying like, geez, I, I wonder, well, my, my story is exactly the opposite of yours, but there are those moments of indecisiveness that are, are regrettable. And then there's those moments of indecisiveness that are regrettable, re- regrettable and irregrettable. Just like I guess decisions can be right, you, you can have those as well. But no, I, I think the second chance thing is really interesting too, because and we're we're coming up on an hour, so we may have to get into this in our next part. But we'll conclude this this part with this conversation about second chances, and I'd love to pick up on our next part of this, the second hour, where maybe we can start off by talking about second chances again, because I think that there is an interesting conversation to be had about how much are we squashing people's initiatives in actually taking risk? Are we creating leaders who are risk averse at the, in the interest of their careers and at the expense of good training that could actually translate into saving lives in future conflicts. Um, sir, thank you. This, this first hour has been fantastic. I look, I look forward to us picking up on part two. Bob Boomer Milstead have talked about some great things about leadership and how it can transcend into the civilian community as well. And in the next hour, we will pick up on some, some more leadership traits and principles. And great. Well, thank you so much for your time, sir, and, and look forward to part two. Thanks for listening to Moments in Leadership. Whether you're a first-time listener or you've been following along from the start, I'd really like to know what you think about the show and, of course, any suggestions that you have for improvements. But here's how you can help me keep this project going. If you could please subscribe, leave a five-star review if you think it's worthy, and leave a very quick review if you listen on Apple Podcasts. The reviews and the subscription and the five stars make it easier for others to find the show and really helps me out a lot. Finally, you can find me on Instagram and Facebook under Moments in Leadership, or you can email me at the Mill Office. That's the M I L O F F I C E at gmail.com. So the Mill Office at gmail.com with any suggestions or even ideas for future guests. I really appreciate your support in this project.